0: U.S.A. side. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. The film Crazy Rich Asians is truly a culture phenomenon, grossing over 238 million and bringing a contemporary Asian-American story to the masses. Writer Kevin Kwan is a Chinese-Singaporean who moved with his family to Texas at the age of 11. Through his books, Crazy Rich Asians, China Rich Girlfriend, Rich People Problems, and Sex and Vanity, he has brought stories of affluent Asians popular acclaim. Asian stories in American media are often reduced to stereotypes of poor immigrants, Kung Fu epics, and melodramatic Chinese operas. But with his stories, Kevin has worked to bring a lacking perspective of Asian lifestyles with American Consciousness.
1: It's really a pleasure to be here.
2: Thank you so much. I know you've been really busy on the book tour trip, digital book tour trip. I know it's a crazy time right now, (laughs) (laughs) and I watch you and I follow you, so I know how busy your schedule is, but thank you for making the time to be with us.
1: Hey, it's Friday afternoon. Let's have a drink and and enjoy ourselves, right?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. So Kevin, where are you right now? I'm in L.A. Oh, we're in a city. I did not know that. I thought, yeah, totally. Well, neighbor. How we might, might
1: even know? be neighbors.
2: I <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the new book. Let's dive right into the new book. The new book, you said that you pay homage to the EM Forsters, A Room with a View, and but it's sitting Capri. So I want to talk about what was the original book that inspired you and where did Capri come from?
1: Yeah, you know, I read A Room of a View, the Ian Forster book, um, probably back in the '80s when I was in high school. You know, and it was um, instantly fell in love with the book, fell in love with the movie, and you know, the book really is set in Tuscany, in Florence, in these great historical cities, and it, you know, it made me fall in love with Italy. I I had to go, and within a couple of years, I was able, I was lucky enough to go to Italy for the first time, um, and on that trip, we made a day trip to Capri, like every other silly tourist, you know. Um, because that's the, be- the worst way to see Capri, is is to go there, and go for five hours, you know, because you arrive with 50,000 other tourists, you're running around like a mad dog, seeing the three main attractions, you buy a gelato, and you have to get back on the ferry, the last ferry leaves at five. And the secret to the island is, that's when it comes alive. When the last ferry leaves, the locals come out, The beautiful people come out, and they really, that's when it becomes truly Capri. So I swore I would go back after that first trip. And so I've been going back to Capri ever since for the last 20 years, loving it. And so when my um, publisher asked me, like, what is your fantasy book to, to write? You know, what do you want to write next now that you've done these three books, this whole trilogy? I said, you know, I just want to do something fun. I want to make a fun, sexy summer read for people. You know, I, I've written these three books. There's a million characters, 18 million locations. I just want to do something really simple. And so that's what I did. I, I you know, did my reinterpretation, my reducts, and tribute to E.M. Forster's Iruba View. And why not set it in Capri? It's one of those beautiful islands in the world. Have you been?
2: No, but I've been to Tuscany. So when I read that this book was going was paying homage to it, and I, I had a picture in my head because I thought I was going to go down the journey to where I've been. But what a wonderful experience to go through the book. And I got the opportunity to read the book to be able to travel to somewhere I'd never travel in my mind. And, and as we know, Capri is such a unique and beautiful little isolated place. It used to be a place where all the old Roman uh, Julius Caesars are kept there in isolation. But now, it's, because of that, it has kept such amazing, beautiful architecture and history there. So I, I think it's so wonderful to see the book that actually sits there, because it, it brings a totally different perspective. And like you said, it's, I'm watching the book, and why would it be the same location, right?
1: Yeah, you got to change it up, you know, and it's it's such a gem of an island. And yeah, it's been basically a party destination since, you know, 200 BC. <laughs> it's where the Roman emperors went, you know, okay. and they loved it so much that that's where they moved the capital of the Roman Empire. And ever since then, it's been this amazing hidden gem. And, you know, I'm sure you know, as a fashion photographer, it's, it's such a famous place for photo shoots.
2: Yeah, it's You know, the, the very yeah.
1: iconic... Dolce and Gabbana ad campaign, you know, of the blue cologne. Everything, you know, it's it's so iconic and it's just beautiful.
2: Well, you say you've been you've been going there for twenty years. So, have this book been in the making for twenty years? Probably
1: about ten years, I would say. Probably about ten years ago, I began thinking of like, "Ooh, this is what I could do. This is how I could reset it. Look at this location." So, I was like, "I've been location scouting for ten years, basically." You know, for all the cool locations that these characters have to go through. And that's what I always do with all my books. I have to really be in the place. I have to breathe the air and see the spaces before I can write about them.
2: Well, and, you know, we, people always say that you write what you know. As a photographer, we photograph what we see at least in a picturesque way, the how we imagine it. So let's dive back a little bit about Crazy Rich Asians, as you said. Millions of characters, hundreds of locations. And, <laughs> and when you were doing Crazy Rich Asians at that time, did you have an inkling that, this trilogy at some point would change the landscape of Hollywood.
1: I mean, from your lips, I mean, it's, it's amazing. No, I would have never thought it. I never even thought it would be published. You know, I was writing it for myself and I never intended to really share it with people other than maybe a few close friends, you know?
2: What is that? Is it because it's so close to you? Is it, is it, is it too much reality in there?
1: Not really. I just felt like, you know, because it's such, a, it's such a once-in-a-lifetime meteor shower, you know, because when you go into bookstores, people, you know, there's so few books, first of all, about Asians and Asian Americans. Um, and so, I just felt like, who's going to want to publish this? My strange little crazy story about these crazy Singaporeans. I'm just going to write it for myself. So, I think actually doing that, making it a passion project – Instead of like some targeted commercial project that I wanted to sell, is what really gave it the magic, the mm-hmm. secret sauce. I truly stayed true to my voice and my vision, and that's what people connected to.
2: Absolutely, you know. And for the- if you try to write
1: a bestseller, it's never going to work, right? You just have to write from the heart.
2: And I you love know? you said that because you know I read about you that you you were in Texas and you actually have design background. That's what you were working on. And we shared that similarity because that was my first career as well as a graphic designer. That's what I was us. Oh. So it was so nice to see a fellow Asian that literally go down a different path than they thought the path it would be on because it seems like it's a common denominator for a lot of us. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you probably don't know this, but I actually, I went to Parsons School of Design in New York. I mean, oh, okay. that's where I went after Texas. And my goal then was to study fashion photography. I wanted to be a fashion photographer.
2: There and
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly enough, you know, I I moved to New York. I started shooting, going to school, you know, taking a lot of studio classes, studying with amazing teachers, and then I started interning in photo departments at magazines. So I worked for Martha Stewart Living. Then I worked for Interview magazine. So I started producing shoots. And once I began doing that, I was like, oh my god, I don't ever want to do this professionally. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how these fashion. I don't know how Bruce Weber does what he does. You know, I you know I please. Don't you know? So I pivoted from fashion into fine art photography and design because I was like, no, I, this is too stressful for me, and I'm not a schmoozer. You know, I can't, I can't be at all the parties trying to get the get get the shoots. See, back then, it was a very different world than it is now. I'm sure you know, right? Oh,
2: it's still it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Just because we're isolated. still... I'm sure there's like smoothing Zoom calls, you know, exclusive yeah. Zoom calls <laughs> in the fashion.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but I was like, leave me alone. I'm going to go to the dark room. And I'm going to do these very weird color prints that have nothing to do with fashion. But, and but so that's what I did.
2: For me, when I get to read your book and I begin to dive into the, even Crazy Rich Asians or Sex Advance, you had to have a bit of a fashion sense background. You had to have that foundation that you went through in order to have the. The, the vernacular to speak to people who are in fashion and read this book and go, well, that's pretty pretty authentic. That this is how the, the the not just the rich but the fashion rich people, right? That's a whole that's a whole yeah, different totally. Right,
1: it had to be fashionista approved. Yeah, really. You know what I mean? And you know, since I knew that world really well, going to design school, it was you know. So people always say, oh, you know, this is – you were an overnight success. You know, you wrote a book and suddenly it became a bestseller. It's like, "Mm, no, I spent 20 years working on this book, and I had to work in so many industries. I had to work in design, and all the things I learned, I put into this book. You know, it wouldn't have been the same if I had written this book at 21 years old, coming fresh out of college, you know, with a creative writing degree.
2: And when, when you were doing creative writing, and as you're developing your voice, did you always found that it was important to speak from an Asian American voice or telling a story about Asian people?
1: You know, actually, no. Actually, no. I think when I first started writing, you know, this was back in college, I was doing a lot of experimental poetry, mm. and so it had nothing to do with an Asian voice. I mean, it's my voice, right? And I'm Asian, so I guess in that sense... It's my voice, but I wasn't really focused on any topics that were even about Asia, you know. I was writing about Morocco. I was writing about parallel universes, you know. I was writing about um, Assisi, actually, I did a whole poem about Italy, but I... And then one day, one day, I had to turn in one assignment, I remember. Uh, It was like due on Monday, it was Sunday night, you know, I had to write one poem. So I think in 15 minutes, I wrote this one poem. And it was called Singapore Bible Study, and it was the first Asian-themed poem I'd written. And you know, I you know, back in those days, you read it in class, and the entire class basically it's on you. They get to critique and <laughs> tell you how horrible your poem is. You know, <laughs> this is this is what happens in creative school, right? They you know they critique and they give you criticism to make you better, right? So I remember reading the poem and. It was such a it was the first truly positive reaction. Um, and people couldn't stop talking about it because they were reading, you know, I was writing about something that no one had ever heard about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Singapore, these strange women that came together for a Bible study, but instead of reading the Bible, they're looking at each other's jewelry, they're trading stocks on their cell phones, you know, and they were like, What is this poem? Tell me more about that world. And so I knew there was something there. But then I ignored it. I ignored it for another 20 years, you but know, you, after that.
2: But you grew up in that atmosphere, growing up in uh
1: Yeah. I mean, everything is from my experience, right? So, but it took me another 20 years before I took, picked up that poem again and said, you know what? I want to start writing a novel and this is going to be my first chapter. It's going to, it's going to start at this Bible study. That, and that's exactly what happened, you know?
2: Now that makes sense to me, right? I, yeah. And and I work in Singapore a lot and I do television shows there. So I yeah. do know those crazy rich Asian people who are in I'm sure you do, yeah. <laughs> and film business. And funny enough, and people have asked me when Crazy Rich Asian came out, they're like, wow, is that really accurate? I go, actually, it's underplayed. Because if you show you what really happened, you will believe it's real. And <laughs> you-, you can attest to that.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we had to fictionalize it to make it a believable movie. And at the same time, when I was writing my book, there were so many scenes that my editor said, you know, you have to take this out. No one's going to believe you. You're going to lose the viewer because it doesn't seem like, it seems like sci-fi now. You know, why is everyone's, too many helicopters, too many private jets, tone it down.
2: And Tone it down. There's a funny story you know. that one of my my great friend in the fashion that told me about this Thai Thai and a crazy rich Asian Thai Thai. Every year she would, you know, fly from Singapore to Thailand doing the. Uh, soft crab season because you can't get them in Singapore and yeah. she would literally pack her suitcases and shove it in her suitcases on top of it <laughs> the product and mew me on top of it just to hide it. And that was her smuggling in the best <laughs> the Soft title, shell crab. The richest rich in the world yeah. <laughs> smuggling soft shell crab into Singapore because they can't get it there. And and if you put that in a story, nobody ever believed you but no. it's real and it's true. And 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 for me it was just such a joy to watch because, you know, growing up in America, obviously, 25 years ago, we know this little film called Joy Luck Club is supposed to be all-inclusive Asian people. And there was still lots of white people in there. But, you know, it was yeah. first to have a prominent Asian culture. And I, I don't know how you feel about Joy Luck Club, but for my family, at least, uh, we find it as a comedy. <laughs> and everybody quoted like a comedy in our family. when We all get together. You know, we're like, oh, you're the Waverly of the family, right? We all <laughs> have you know, but so. I laugh because now we have another film that we get to reference. And how lovely is to reference being rich, right? That's even wow. better. <laughs> you know, and, and 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 I got to work with Constance, so I, I you know, so I find that we have this such wonderful connection and and thank you for for making the film. Thank you for allowing the film to be made, I should say. And and one thing I do want people to know I have a lot of Asian American uh, guests that watch the show as well. When Crazy Rich Asian was going to be made into a film, there were processes where people have asked, asked you that you were wanting to change the Asianness of the book to other race. Uh, what was that like for you as as a novelist who wrote this book in the Asian voice and your voice that want to be adapted into a totally different genre?
1: I mean, that was in the very beginning. You know, one of the very first interested um, you know movie producers approached me and said, hey, you know, I, I think you've got a great book, but we got to change Rachel Chu into a white girl. And I was like, sorry, not interested. You know, you've missed the whole point. Uh, so really, it was only just one person. And since then, you know, um, huh? after that, all the offers, people, people really believed in the vision
2: you know um, this, but that's, you know that's the first
1: initial reaction hollywood has because this was before there was any success so you know people were people were very afraid of taking any risks you know so i
2: mean, i think that's so important. But i wasn't
1: interested in that movie.
2: Well, I was like so I don't need
1: to make it mate. Yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly and also so important for this time to talk about because we know how many films out there that are lack of strong character of the women of color lack of lack of diversity in film in hollywood i think you said people are afraid but by having the, the success of a Crazy Rich Asians, it paves the road for so many other film possibilities. All of a sudden I think Hollywood run by old thinking. <laughs> I was being nice.
1: I knew what you were gonna say, so But
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's better than me, so you can fill the gap. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 I'm so I'm I'm so happy to know that. Whether you agree with the film, like the film, not like the film, what it did is historical. And for me, as an artist, that I thought, wow, this is not just a conversation about about a successful film. Because what you saw in the fashion industry is that they begin to put all the leading, you know, stars from that show to be on a cover of magazine. We didn't see a lot of Asian people on a magazine, and people didn't know what what a leading Asian man was like and what an Asian man can mm-hmm. be sexy, right? We have like Daniel Day Kim. One person, and that's it. Nobody can make Everybody, right? (laughs) (laughs) But now we are open up a conversation to say, look, Asian men can be sexy, and Asian women can be powerful. It doesn't always have to be the character like Joy Luck Club, right? Everybody just yeah.
1: I mean, I was wanting. I wrote the book to shatter the stereotypes. You know, that was my main goal because I was saying, you know, I, I watch TV, I see movies, I read books. I don't see the Asia that I know. You know, because I was lucky enough to grow up in Singapore and live there till I was 11. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had the Chinese channel and then we had the American channel. So for me, it was my whole life as a child. You know, I I could watch Knight Rider, you know, at 8 p.m. At 9 p.m., I could turn on an amazing Jackie Chan kung fu Mm -hmm. movie or some Asian soap opera that showed really, you know, kick-ass, sexy, evil people. You know, so for me, there was a duality. So I didn't realize that that was lacking in America until i moved there until i you know was becoming much more conscious of the mediascape and it's like we only see these tired old stereotypes you know in books in tv and it's not a reflection of what's going on in asia right now you know asia's been going through a 30 year old boom you know there's more prosperity there's more energy you know you go to hong kong it's like new york on acid You know, the energy, um, the people are living in the future. It's, these are future cities and we are living in the past, quite frankly. So I wanted to channel all that into these worlds. So, so important for me to really represent the world that I saw, you know, and to showcase these beautiful, but intelligent, capable women, strong women like Eleanor Young, you know, and then for the men, you know, it was so important. Like I had a long conversation with John Chu. Actually, I remember, You know, I said, you know, I know this is going to sound weird, John, but we need to get some of these men shirtless. (laughs) You know, we need a shirtless scene on the beach or something, you know, because it's going to give all the other actors out there in Hollywood a chance to play roles that aren't just computer geek, taxi driver, laundromat owner. You know what I mean? Like, because we need to see Asian men in a whole new way. And so he did. And And so we went out of our way, (laughs) you (laughs) You know, Chris Pang, the actor, didn't eat any, I think he ate boiled chicken and vegetables and no salt for like a month just to look (laughs) as cut as he does, but it it paid off, you know.
2: If that's what, it, that's what it takes to make, make the pendulum swing in the right direction and yeah. take the stereotype, why not? So how were you able to take all those things that would matter to you so much and start to work on the new book, Sex and Manity? Did a lot of that, that courage you wanted in the characters carry over to the new book?
1: Absolutely. I, thanks for asking that. But, you know, once again, I'm trying to innovate for myself. right? I'm trying to do something new, something fresh, create new characters. And I felt like I'd done three books about this whole world of Asia. And I wrote also about a very strong, amazing Asian American woman, Rachel Chu, right, who is so beautifully played by Constance. It's like, what's the next thing? What can I do now that will help also move the needle yet one more time? And so it's like, well, the perfect combination is to have someone that's biracial. Lucy, you know, Lucy, what is it like being a biracial American moving through life? And for her moving in the most elite circles in America, you know, because I saw that up close and I saw all the issues that can exist in that world. So I wanted to just have her a, a biracial, a Hapa character, just colliding into the ultimate privilege bubble of America, and and let's see what happens.
2: Well, it's so timely because Hapa has now become an, a word that everybody understands what it is. But those of who don't just means mixed race, Asian mixed with whatever else. <laughs> but yeah.
1: it's a Hawaiian um, word.
2: My <laughs> my godson yeah. is. It's Hapa, right? My goddaughter is yeah. Hapa. So and 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 the fact is that war has been now celebrated. The the Hapas get together, they follow each other Instagrams, yeah. and they, they celebrate diversity in their own beautiful way. And and I love that this character. She has background from Taiwan, and which I can relate because I'm from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And I. What I really enjoy is to, to to really dive into the different levels of classism that you have in the book. Here's somebody from Taiwan, not from China, which makes a total different dynamic. And totally talking, different, yeah. You talk about old money, and you talk about new money. Then you talk about classism, and you're talking about uh, a region where people are from. Is this something I think is so poignant now. And, and, and obviously, this book has been the worst forever. As we're going through this time right now, do you not see how... Reflective, this book is for this time. I mean,
1: in a strange way, the timing turned out perfectly. You know, um, it's interesting. Before the book came out, you know, because the book was supposed to come out in June, as it did. Um, I really sat down with my, my publishers and I said, you know, is this the right moment? You know, to to release this book because there's so many terrible things happening with the pandemic, with Black Lives Matter. Like the world is blowing up not just in America, but in countries around the world, you know, this book, you know, Sex and Vanity, I don't think it's frivolous, but I I just want to make sure it's not tone deaf, you know, and they convinced me, no, we need this book now more than ever, because number one, it's an escape, (laughs) but number two, you really do address all these issues of racism and identity, you know, but in a way with humor. In a way that doesn't knock you over the head with, you know, I'm not trying to lecture people, but I'm trying to show, you know, through these stories, through the the eyes of my characters, what life is like when you are not, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, perfect blue blood family.
2: And what best way to educate people through satire, right? Put a smile on people's faces. And what I love truly about this book, too, is that you could not replace any character to a different color. I don't know if that was a cautious decision or not. Um, mm-hmm. I not only read the book, I listened to the audio audio um, version as well. And it's very interesting because there two different dynamics that happen. Yeah. The audio version for you guys who don't have time to pick up the book because you're always driving traffic. The audio book actually paints a very, um, uh, I would say, accent that goes into the story even deeper. The characters, you can hear them, and you begin to understand the classism. It's not just in the writing. It's actually the way, the pattern of the dictation where people speak. and when I heard that, I had to sit back and almost tears in my eyes because I struggled with that all my life. I wanted mm-hmm. to be growing up in America, wanted to be able to be on television, which I had an opportunity to do, but there was a lot of struggles going, are people going to accept my accent? How do I get rid of this accent? I went through voice coaches. It's never going to go away because I wasn't born here. I, I, the problem is, I don't hear myself, I don't hear yeah. it, therefore, I can't change those things. But. When I heard the well, how old
1: were you when you came to America?
2: Fourteen.
1: Fourteen. Yeah. They always say it's it's if you come a little earlier, or if you you know like before your voice voice breaks, um, you will be able to adopt the accent. Well, I don't
2: know about that. And voice, you know, I was a I don't, yeah. my voice didn't break. Till I was twenty four. I had puberty really yeah. late. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's
1: so, that's an interesting topic because it's like code shifting. You know, for for me. I don't really have an original accent. You know, my original accent is more British, Mm. but whoever I'm with, my accent changes. And it's so annoying, I can't help it. Like if you listen to some interviews with me with Australians or British, I take on that accent. And it's I cannot help it. Even when I try to speak in American with them, if they're speaking back to me in British or in, in sort of Aussie, somehow. You know, it's and it comes from being this sort of, you know, immigrant kid that has lived in different cultures. You know, my ear bone adjust, adjusts in a different way.
2: Yeah. Cause that, like you said, yeah. you
1: have- So I can, I can totally sympathize.
2: But that, that constant struggle makes you question you, can you? Can you succeed in the Western world? Can you, can you break the mold? Are they going to accept a yellow-skinned person on a primetime television? When I turn on the TV, I don't see that, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fortunate enough that, that Tyra Banks believed in me and I ended up doing American Top Model and other shows because of, because of my skill set and my expertise in fashion and beauty. Mm-hmm. And, but there's still days I look in the mirror and I have to question, you know, would I have given them more opportunity if I was not yellow? and I didn't have an accent, right? That's always a constant struggle for Asian Americans. who, yeah. Especially first generation. I think the second generation struggle is a little bit more different because they truly feel they're American. So for them, the struggle is even harder because they don't have accents and they grew up in the yeah. country. And most of them, you know, my cousins and them, they're growing up, not wanting to speak Mandarin, not wanting to speak Chinese or, or Japanese, mm-hmm. or whatever they're from there, because they are American. So their struggle is a little bit different when I begin to talk to them, mm-hmm. right? And at least I can sit back and go, well, it's because of my accent. For them, they just have to look into me and go, oh, because I'm a hapa, or because I have yellow skin, therefore I'm not given an opportunity. And that's why I think, these are the conversations happening a lot. And it's the reason I have this, this platform to, on Let's Talk is to invite Asian Americans like you, To show people that the conversation we're having, the books you're writing, the film you're making, the pictures you're taking, art that you're creating, if you can't amplify and celebrate diversity and and amplify the, the idea that color, sound should not matter, but talent and the ability to do your job matters more. I think that's what I feel that really helps our community.
1: Absolutely. And the key word, you keep saying it, is opportunity. There needs to be more opportunity for people from all diverse backgrounds, you know, to represent and to showcase their talent in our mediascape. You know, when I did, you know, I, I had the amazing opportunity to create a, a, a comedy, a half hour comedy for CBS and Warner right. Brothers TV last year. Said so, we made it all the way to the pilot. You know, we shot an amazing pilot. It was triumphant. Ken Jeong was in it. Um, but it was interesting. When we began casting,
2: it was so... It
1: was such a challenge to find, for example, a woman between 40 and 50 who's Asian that can do comedy and speak English. You know, because no one's had the training.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No one's had the option. There have never been a- Asian actresses in their 40s with the opportunity to be on a comedy show. With the-, the grand exception of Lucy Usually, Lou. Right, you know what right, I mean?
2: Right, Who but- was busy. But-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who was already booked up. You know what I mean? So it's like... If you don't give us the opportunity to try, how are we ever supposed to break through? But
2: I think how I think, are we ever
1: supposed to, to do this? You know?
2: Because as Asian culture, we look at what's yeah. in front of us and say, Well, that's not gonna happen. Why are we wasting time trying to chase yeah. after that something, right? I, I always said that I was so blind and, and, and in a way a, a crazy I, I I'll give you an example. When I first uh, was when I was in art school, I went to Art Center. So I know Parson really well. Ooh, While very cool. Center Rival center, West
1: Coast School. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when I was in study, one way to make money and fastest place to go to with a lot uh, of people so you can sketch them, because we have to do sketches all the time, yeah. was to sign up for central casting and be a background actor so you can learn about what's on the set. And you sit there, lots of yeah. people waiting around, so you sketch them. And I remember back then... And I was so oblivious when you listen to these phone messages saying, we're looking for white guys, six feet tall can skateboard. All I heard is he can skateboard and I show up. Wow. I never listened to how tall they should be or what color you should be. All the stereotype casting they have. I would show up and the casting director to like, you're the wrong casting. I go, no, I'm the right casting. You want skateboarder? I can skate. I can mm-hmm. skate. I'm back when you telling me you can't, you don't see my skin color in the background. I need to make my 50 bucks to pay for my school. And I need to be somewhere I can sit around for eight hours and sketch people. And But eventually, the casting director knows when I show up because it's a central casting. I'm like, oh, well, here's a yeah. Give them a part. And funny enough, I know along that way, I broke a lot of molds. You know? <laughs> I, I mm-hmm. them think yeah. differently. and them differently. And, and I think that's how the world needs to be. That you don't have to follow the stereotype that's given out there. Even... Like you said, when, when you're doing casting, looking for a certain particular Asian woman that's comedy, we go through the same casting for a brand like Coca-Cola, for example, right? Mm-hmm. We want a, a Japanese-esque girl that, that, that can speak English and we need her to also be able to do social media and whatnot. And those processes are hard. And we realize it's not because they're not available to us because they don't want to be. It's because the media have not told us it's good to have those things for yourself in order for the opportunity to come, and I think that's what you have done with your book, with with the success of the blockbuster, and a new book that's coming coming to become a mega hit on the movie theater. I'm sure of it. That that you are crossing my fingers. <laughs> you know what? So guys, out there, start yeah. learning English if you're Asian, because it's a film you will be casting and <laughs> read the book and find <laughs> which part that you fit and go. I'm already looking for a part in that book, so I'm one of those guys. <laughs> and and but that that's exactly it. You're right. It's because we don't think we need to have the skill set because we don't see that skill set being utilized in the media or in the world that we work in. And and that's that's absolutely profound what you're doing. And yes, you're a writer, yes, you're your novelist, novice, you're your movie maker, and you do TV's. But beyond all that, you are a, you know you're paving forward for so many. Asian Americans or any diverse people who doesn't think that they can break the mold in America or in a Western culture for that matters.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. And I think it goes the same for you. We're, we're both, I think, renegades. We're both black sheep, right? The fact that we decided to pursue a creative career mm-hmm. is already so rare. And I think it also, you know, it's it's a two-sided issue because yes, there's no opportunity out there because of the powers that be in Hollywood, but also... It is a societal problem. It's an Asian community problem also in America in that parents, you know, don't encourage their kids to go into creative fields and to take risks. They want them to be safe. You know, I get it. You know, they want you to be secure and stable. They want you to, you know, become a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, go work for Google. You know, I spoke at Google. Um, I, you know, I had a really amazing time, went to the Google campus, did a big talk, Google-wide, I brought my mom along because I, I thought it'd be fun for her to just to see me do something, and she just had gotten her first iPad for the first time, this is a few years ago. So she knew what Google was, right? So while I'm signing books, there's a long line, like 200 people waiting for me to sign their books after my speech. She's going up and, up and down the line talking to people, and like, what is she saying? to these people. You know, what is she is she asking them questions about Google and then one by one they'd be like, "Oh my god, your mom is so cute. She's trying to get you a job here. <laughs> she's trying to get you hired at Google because she's so impressed that like free lunch, amazing food, free gym. <laughs> she wants you to have a secure job, you know? And it's it's that Asian parent, right? It's so it's a two-way street, you know, like I think I think the new generation, you know, you and with your kids, you're going to encourage them to do whatever the hell they want, right? So it's it's a new world, but it's, you know, we have to really sort of, I think, all collectively also. Um, I
2: love that story about your mom, and I'll show you my, that I graduated in biology, and I was working already in the field as a wildlife biologist, and that yeah. was a path I'm so on. I get my PhD at Columbia and become like a researcher and professor, and And long story short, somebody saw my work and thought that I should be an artist, sent it to art center, I got a scholarship, and I told my family, because I already, since I already moved out the house, and I came home, I told my mom, I said, by the way, I'm changing, I'm done with biology for a second, I'm going to take a little break, and I'm going to go to art school. And they were going crazy, going, oh, you, you just dedicated this entire time and you're, you finish your, your pre-med and you're supposed to be taking MCAT. You're supposed to move on to the next, yeah. the next generation of your career to become a doctor or a veterinarian, whatever that may be. And it wasn't until a week later, there was a Taiwanese newspaper that landed on my dad's desk. And my dad's a typical Chinese man who reads a newspaper while he eats and spits the bones out in the newspaper. So he's the only one who reads it. When he's done, he wraps it up oh. and throws it in the trash, right? So halfway through, he's eating his chicken bones or whatever he's eating. All the papers is completely greasy. He saw this article. And he starts scraping all the bones off. So he handed it to my mom. And then my mom came to me with this article when I saw her a couple of days later. The newspaper is completely full of grease. I couldn't even like see it. Yeah. And I don't remember really <laughs> Mandarin that well, but I can see the rest of it. And yeah. She pointed at She goes, Okay, you can go to Art Center. And I was like, why are you show me a greasy newspaper and tell me I can go to Art Center? This is not fine art. This is this is this is a newspaper. Yeah. And it was an article about a Taiwanese designer who went to Art Center. She designed the car to four tours and became the car of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so she paved the way for me yeah. on a greasy newspaper to be able to uh, welcome and celebrated by my family to go into the arts. So so
1: once they could see a success story, it changed things.
2: And, and you know yeah, what I mean? I want that story to be told because you are that yeah. success story. You are that amazing yeah. successful, successful story. You know, I I had opportunity writing treatment development for movies over the years and, and, and I'm all I'm dyslexic because ever since I switched my mode from art, from mm-hmm. biology to art, my brain just went went crazy. And I Back then, I can name every scientific name of birds and flies and plants and spell them out like this. I can't mm-hmm. completely. My left brain, right brain just went crazy. So I became super dyslexic. And and because of that, I started fighting, oh, can I still be a writer? Can I still express myself the way I want to? And, and those are all the things that you put doubts on yourself. Then you have somebody like you who was in the arts, who write these amazing novels and stories that I get to to jump in and dive in because I relate to them so much so because I actually know those people, are crazy ones, the rich ones. And I know the, the vanity of sex people too because every single character you mentioned, I'm like, I know that person. I know that person. <laughs> and I want you on here, really I want to thank you for giving me strength and giving other Asian Americans that, that are still on that path asking and looking in the mirror and say, is there opportunity for me? And, because you really carved out an opportunity for yourself. There's nobody before you have done anything like it.
1: You're very kind. You're very kind, and you know, it's. I feel like it's still a struggle. You know, I feel like I'm still swimming uphill every day. You know, as I work on my TV shows, I try to get new projects off the ground. Um, you know, every day uh, you have to take that risk, right? Like even for me, writing this book, doing something totally different from the CRA universe. You know, it was a risk, but I felt like you know what? I just I have to keep challenging myself, and I have to keep breaking new ground. You know.
2: Well, Sex and Manatee is also going to be part of the trilogy, I believe, right? It's, this is just
1: a- it is. It's a new trilogy, um, but it's an unconventional trilogy in the sense that this story is finished, right? It's not going to continue in the second books, but it's, it's a trilogy that, that really pays tribute to cities. Wow. So this first book was the New York story. The next book is going to be London. And the last book is going to be Paris. So three big fashion cities.
2: Well, out of curiosity, when you begin to write books about these cities, if you can travel again, do you plan yourself into that location and really let the the atmosphere infuse into your writing?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I I was supposed to be in England by now, you know, starting to do research for the next book. But, you know, they won't let us in yet.
2: (laughs) Well, interesting.
1: Unfortunately, we we have the worst passport in the world at the moment, you know. We
2: do, we do. You know, Lucy Lucy went from this little women that that you don't think has the internal strength and power to come out and i'm not going to give the ending away guys yeah i was but like
1: no spoilers yeah no
2: spoiler but she, she yeah. transcends in her own way with with a bit of a romeo and Juliet struggles with the families and it's, it's a beautiful tale. but you've always been telling stories through a woman's perspective Will you ever consider to tell it through a man's perspective
1: well i mean that's a really interesting question isn't it um
2: you, you perspective. might you
1: might get your you might get your wish with the next book.
2: I feel like it's coming. I yeah. feel like it's yeah. going to come because as I'm reading the words and I'm hearing the voices from the yeah. audio tape, I'm all, I go, wow, he's really have celebrated this incredible courageous woman, and I think it's time for a man to step up, and I think it's so important. And I'm not yeah. putting pressure on you.
1: That's them, interesting them, though, because I see you know I see the Crazy Rich Asians books. To me, it's Nick is the central focus. Nick is the really? Nick is the through line. You know, so I I don't you know I think it's balanced. There are female characters that are telling their stories, but to me, it all begins with Nick, and he that's, originates this story.
2: Huh. I'm gonna have to reread that and revisit yeah. it from his perspective. This yeah, I re- mean, did you read the third book,
1: Rich People Problems?
2: No, I only read Crazy. Yeah, yet. yeah, sorry.
1: that's very much in his voice. You know, it's. It's Nick.
2: <laughs> Listen, Nick on the screen, you can't help it, but he is the center focus. He's so beautifully casted. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, so I can understand that. Well, I'm looking forward to see the next iterations of trilogies and be able to travel through this journey through your, your eyes. And, and thank you again for for being here and celebrate with us the amazing accomplishment you're doing. And. And along the way, thank you. keep breaking molds for all of us and keep celebrating diversity. And, and and thank you for educating people out there that Asian people are funny. Because that's the funniest thing that when my friends who saw Crazy Rich Asians, I got so many DMs going, I didn't know your people are funny. <laughs> <laughs> and my response to my white friends, I go, I didn't realize you guys are so dumb.
1: <laughs>
2: you
1: <know>? Good response.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna continue laugh and yes, Asian people are funny. And yes, people, and yes, crazy rich Asians are rich. And then beautiful stories of coverage. You guys really dive into these books because they're there's such escape. And I think you said this on the top of the, the show that it was so important. This book is so poignant right now because we do need that escape right now. We need to whether you wanna get into the political realm of what the book can be about, the underlying of classism and racism and, 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 and all that with. Even all that put aside, you get to really travel to Italy and, and enjoy the blue water and see through Lucy's eyes what the world could be. So thank you for that. And the food. And the food. Oh, my God. Let's so never forget you, the food. <laughs> you and I will have to get back together again to talk. and Not about the book, but about your knowledge of food. I I have heard, and I interviewed someone, pre interviewed someone the other day. So, to come on the show, it's a food writer. I said that, you know, Kevin, I'm going to be talking. He goes, Oh my God, you don't need to talk about his book. You talk about that all the time. Talk about food. He goes, I would love that. Best restaurant (laughs) in the world. So, we are going to reconnect, and we're going to talk about Street to Kitchen, which is a show I did in Singapore, and I traveled to Taiwan. So, we can talk about that. And we're going to talk about amazing restaurants tastings that you have around the world and bring us into that oh my god that's the next book right you'll see
1: you'll see well thank you so much thank
0: you thank Thank you thank you kevin for being a strong voice for the aapi community your work has elevated the status and portrayals of asian americans Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusai.com and follow me on Instagram at usai88 for updates. Let's Talk is a production of ADA Phases. I'm your host, Usai. Our director, Luis Jaime, and writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Sorenjin. Thank you for this conversation.